DHNI. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz, and you're listening to our podcast about the relevance of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today is, of course, the second part, part two of two, of our exploration of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. We're going to talk about the plot for the rest of the novel, the third stage of Pip's expectations, but perhaps more interestingly, we are also going to be doing some cross-comparisons and other types of literary peeks at the text. First, a note on serialization with help from our sections link from crossref-it, linked as always at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the page for this episode. Serialization, when it comes to Dickens, is the practice of publishing weekly or monthly installments of a longer work before publishing the volume as a whole. In essence, instead of getting the whole book at once, readers then read a few chapters of the work at a time over a long period of weeks or months. There are a few Dickens-isms that emerge as products of this setup, namely All plots and subplots needed to keep moving installment to installment so that readers could keep up with the complexity of the story. For example, the Magwitch plotline in Great Expectations needed to keep moving at the same time as the Joe plotline, at the same time as the Miss Havisham Estella plotline, at the same time as the Mr. Jaggers plotline. You can see where I'm going. All characters needed to be overblown so that they could be immediately recognizable in each scene in the smaller context. For example, I think of Uncle Pumblechook, who is immediately recognizable on his staunchness, his inhumility, his loudness, his gluttony. All of those things are overblown so that he's immediately recognizable when he enters the scene. Each installment necessarily needed a cliffhanger so that readers would be encouraged to read the next installment. I think this is one aspect of Dickens's writing that really keeps the ball rolling, is that each story thread ends up on a pretty big cliffhanger, meaning that you really do want to keep reading. Each installment also needed to be a certain length, so there's sometimes occasions where there's fluff writing, or what a lot of people would call fluff writing, just to make a certain section a certain length. Um, I think this just adds to the complexity of the plot and sometimes may put Dickens on tangents that maybe he didn't need to go on, but like I said, Dickensisms are Dickensisms. It's good to keep in mind that there are also negative sides to all of these effects. For example, with uh, the character's point, that could often lead to the use of caricatures and stereotypes, which are not always the nicest thing to have in a novel like this. Great Expectations was first, and I'm quoting from the Crossref It IT link in the show notes, published in quote, 36 weekly sections from the autumn of 1860 through August of 1861, unquote. This necessitated that Dickens was still writing some parts of the story as other parts were in the process of being published, which certainly led to some of the Dickensisms and likewise problems that we just discussed. 
the third stage of Pip's expectations. All right, let's get into the final stage of Pip's expectations, which is pretty action-packed to say the least. These last plot points I will go over very, very briefly because the beauty of these moments and the mysteries they solve is divided between the writing itself and the mysteries they solve themselves. <laughs> First of all, Pip, over the course of this whole last ending chunk, finds out who Estella's mother and father are. First of all, he realizes that Estella's mother is the woman who is servicing Mr. Jaggers. So when he goes to dinner with her a second time, he realizes that the woman that is under Mr. Jaggers' care, wings, whatever you want to call it, has the same hands as Estella. Then he goes back and realizes that she is a convict who was charged supposedly with murdering another woman after murdering her daughter. Turns out the daughter is still alive. And the convict who Miss Servant slash Estella's mother was involved with at that time was none other than Magwitch, who is Estella's father. Estella herself marries Drummle, the skeeving, very gross <laughs> other tutorie of Mr. Pocket, who David, or not David, Pip, despises. Miss Havisham also eventually dies after getting badly burnt. She goes into a fit of sort of delirium and, and catches herself on fire and Pip is there, but he also gets caught on fire. So his arms are pretty burnt as well. So she has a pretty steady decline after that incident. Next, Orlick uh, tries to kill Pip. He sends a message. He says, look, I know that you are harboring a convict, basically. And Pip doesn't know who it is. He thinks it's maybe Compison, who is the convict who was involved with Magwitch to get Magwitch tried with such serious crimes. Um, so he goes to the marshes in the middle of the night to try to figure out who this is and reason with them, uh, and uh, Orlick almost succeeds in killing Pip, and thank goodness for Herbert and for the son of the tailor, of all people, because Pip gets saved, and Orlick uh, escapes, but narrowly. I think he gets nailed later. Pip, after this incident, uh, becomes very ill. He's pretty ill throughout the whole last part of this novel, but he gets, like, delusional ill, um, and he gets nursed back to health, um, pretty much by Herbert at this point, Joe later. They, as I mentioned earlier and in the last part, are hiding Magwitch and pretty much to no avail because as they try to get Magwitch on a foreign cruiser to get him out of the country so that he's not tried in the country, uh, the other convict, Compison, comes and catches up with him, knows his location, uh, and then they get into a tossle in the water and Magwitch drowns Compison or Compison drowns himself, something happens um, along those lines. There's no real explanation of how Compison drowns. I think Magwitch drowned him, that's just my reading of it. Um, and then after a long battle, Magwitch gets comprehended and he eventually dies in prison. Pip's expectations in terms of his like money at this point and the, mo the money that he would have gotten from the convict, uh, they go to waste because 
Magwitch's property gets surrendered to the crown on his apprehension. So Pip has no expectations at this point, which I thought would be a point of greater elaboration in the book, but he just loses his expectations and everything's fine. Everything moves forward. Um, Pip becomes ill again after all of these um, events. I think he wasn't taking care of himself while he was at Magwitch's bedside for all of those weeks and months, and he becomes ill. Joe nurses him back to health. Uh, Joe eventually also pays Pip's debts. He sort of, Pip wakes up in the middle of his illness and he's really sick and there's there are these debt collectors that have come to arrest Pip and send him to debtor's prison. He goes, gentlemen, I would go with you. But unfortunately, I can't get up. <laughs> and, and then he just faints, you know? And Joe, turns out Joe really saves the day in more ways than one because he not only is a super dedicated nurse to Pip, but he also um, pays Pip's debts. That scene is really interesting to me when Pip is in and out of delirium and he gets only glimpses of Joe and learns in, in gasps and breaths about Joe's situation and things. Um, because it reminds me a lot of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky when a lot of these moments are are perpetuated and propelled by the guilt that Pip has. So initially Pip sees Joe and he thinks, oh, everyone in the debtor's prison is Joe. And I'm just seeing other people in the form of Joe. And then as he starts to get better and better, he realizes, oh, it really is Joe. <laughs> that was not just uh, an approximation on my end. So it's interesting because of that cross comparison literature there. Pip, eventually, after he gets better, after Joe leaves back for the forge, everything, um, Pip realizes that Joe marries Biddy. And he, Joe, Pip was gonna go back and ask for Biddy's hand in marriage anyway because the Estella thing didn't work out. Then he comes back and realizes that uh, Joe has married Biddy and everything is, is great. He's so happy for them. Pip eventually does leave uh, to go work for Herbert and his new wife in Cairo. Um, Herbert, as I mentioned last time, uh, has a position set up by Pip and Wemmick, uh, and they set him up this grandiose business deal in a merchant kind of trade that's up and coming. Um, and Herbert obviously excels at his trade and he eventually marries the girl who he's wanted to marry for a while and yada yada. So <laughs> Pip eventually goes and works for Herbert as a, as a clerk, as a lowly clerk. He has no expectations at this point, but he does really well for himself. And he sort of becomes the ultimate bachelor or like the ultimate third wheel in this regard because he lives with Herbert and uh, his new wife, but he doesn't really have any plans to marry or to move on besides his position. Eventually, 11 years <laughs> working in Cairo, Pip moves back, or he doesn't move back, he just goes back to England to visit everyone, and uh, Joe and Biddy have a son named Pip. And this goes into the original ending of Great Expectations. That's right, there are two endings. The ending that you would read today is the second ending, which uh, someone 
close to Dickens convinced him to change after the original ending came out. So in the serialization, the ending would have been different than what we see in novels today, and also uh, what we would have seen in the first novels that were published after the serialization was finished. So the original ending is that Pip is walking uh, little Pip, Biddy and Joe's son, through the town and there's this big carriage that comes up to him and there's a squire or some servant that comes up to Pip and says, um, can you stop? There's someone in the carriage who would like to speak to you and it's Estella, of course, and Estella sort of gives her um, gives Pip rather her cold regards and they sort of have a moment and then she stalks off probably thinking that the child is Pip's when indeed that is a uh, mistake. <laughs> I should also mention that that ending occurs eight years after Pip moves to Cairo whereas this second ending that we're about to go through is occurring 11 years after Pip returns from Cairo. There's sort of an interesting uh, numerical difference between them uh, and early reviewers of Great Expectations actually mixed up these kinds of dates between the original ending and the second ending. So again, 11 years later is the second ending that you would see in most novels today. The actual ending of Great Expectations is a great ending. It's not like Jane Austen's work where her work just doesn't have great endings in my opinion. This is a wholesome, full ending, and it's ambiguous, which is my favorite part. It's like Tristan, the opera, where he, Pip goes to Seda's house. He goes to Miss Havisham's house, and it's basically about to be demolished. It's a wreck. It's old. It's Parts of it haven't been opened to the daylight for years and years and years, as I mentioned with Miss Havisham earlier. Um, it's just a big mess and it needs to be demolished. He's walking through the absolutely decimated gardens and he finds Estella who is visiting the place for the last time before it gets demolished and she builds a little house there. And there's this connection between the two of them as in years and years and years prior when they would walk around the garden together and there's this sort of passing of forgiveness between the two of them and it's ambiguous because we really don't know what happens between Pip and Estella. Pip has his life and his position in Cairo after all um, and Estella her broken heart and her fortune to look after um, but it's hopeful and I would say that I ended the book with a, a heart full <laughs> Um, so to speak, because I really do think, or I hope at least, that Pip and Estella find a way to make it work after all these years. Let's get into Pip versus Steerforth. The look at Dickens' early novels in the show notes gives us an opinion that Pip, like Steerforth from David Copperfield, is, quote, ambiguous. Complete honesty here. That point that I read many weeks ago is why it took me so long to publish part two of this miniseries. I had to think about this claim at length for many, many weeks. Steerforth is David's best friend in David Copperfield, as I mentioned, that is until Steerforth betrays him one too many times by wrongfully seducing Emily, one of David's closest friends, basically his sister, then leaving Emily by word of mouth in desolation and ignominy. 
Steerforth is cool, calm, and collected, but he is also self-serving and ultimately has lower habits and ways about him than David wants to outright admit. Steerforth is true, yet two-timing, brave, yet again self-serving, you get the point. All of those conflicting traits are where Steerforth's ambiguity comes from. Pip is also ambiguous in some of the same regards. He is bright and quick to pick up on things like the mystery between Estella and her parents and has a huge thorn in his side his entire adult life due to the unrequited love of Estella, but he also abandons Joe and Biddy at home because they are too low for him after he leaves with his expectations, even though Joe and Biddy are the kindest, most humble people in the story and take pains again and again to remind readers of how they will always look after Pip no matter his circumstances or expectations. Pip also shows a great deal of resentment for various people throughout the story who thwart him in some way, like Drummle who takes Estella away from him, and at first the convict who he resents because he believes the source of his expectations after it is revealed wasn't as true or pure or honest as they could have been had they come from someone like Miss Havisham. Ambiguity. That the two characters are ambiguous, and often ambiguous in the same ways, holds. But Dickens awards Pip with the opportunity for repentance and redemption that Steerforth as a character was too selfish to muster. This point is demonstrated in the rather ambiguous second ending that Great Expectations has, with Pip and Estella meeting again, Pip foraging a new life wholly without his expectations in place, and pretty much out of the kindness that he was able to proffer to Herbert early on in the story. We don't know what becomes of Pip, but at the end, Pip ends up with a net positive that in my mind sets him up way more favorably than Steerforth. Steerforth, he dies with Emily's fiance in a serious bout of irony. Though David forgives him, he really dies with a bitter end. Both Pip and Steerforth end up on one side or the other. The difference is that Pip ends up on the side of good, Steerforth on the side of bad. Pip versus David. David Copperfield began its serialization in 1849, some 11 years before the serialization of Great Expectations. Many, including your host, know David Copperfield to be Dickens' great autobiographical novel, as the author gives its protagonist similar beginnings, interests, and observations to the author himself. Great Expectations, as I mentioned in part one of this miniseries, had its beginnings in a tumultuous, and one might even say liminal, period in Dickens' life and career, putting it in the same self-actualizing rank as David Copperfield. Indeed, early in its inception, there were some doubts that Great Expectations might end up being too similar to David Copperfield because of its plot and narration style. Ultimately though, and this is the argument we will make in the minutes to follow, the two novels stand on their own. Great Expectations, first of all, has its roots in serious themes, as does David Copperfield, and notwithstanding the similarities in plot and narration style that we already covered, 
But unlike David Copperfield, Great Expectations employs a humor reminiscent of Dickens' earlier works rather than the works of his later period, like David Copperfield, for example. We also talked about the book's humor at length in the first episode, though, so let's suffice to say that the careful and constant humor of the novel makes it a more lighthearted one than David Copperfield is. Perhaps more deeply felt after finishing Great Expectations, though, is a shift in Pip's narration from focusing on himself and his own goings-on, his own expectations, that is, to focus on the people around him and their expectations. I notice the shift especially in moments like when Pip comes home, rid of his expectations to marry Biddy and finds that she's just married Joe, or when Pip gets the information that Joe has finally become literate enough to write, miraculously seemingly. These moments though lapses into Pip's earlier style of selfish narration provide in their overjoicings at what has actually transpired events of great weight in the story as a whole. Indeed, what one notices over the course of the novel, and this is strictly different from books like David Copperfield or Oliver Twist, is that the great expectations are not meant for just Pip. They are meant for every character involved in the narrative. Alright, I hope you enjoyed that look into Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. I certainly did. We pick up later this week, and if I'm honest, we'll probably continue this into the new year with Bleak House by Charles Dickens. I will see you then. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from us, there is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website, relevanceofliterature.com, under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalogue of episodes. We also have a couple of open surveys that you can find through the links in the description, so if you have three minutes while you're waiting in line somewhere, we would very much appreciate your feedback on our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, and we'll see you next time.